What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hello everyone and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host Mark Bigney and with me as always is my loyal co-host Mike Walker. How you doing Walker? Fantastic. I am proud to announce that as part of our ongoing commitment to transparency for one of the games that I played this week, I'm going to give you a full rundown of my interior psychological state and how it could best be described as angst, because otherwise it would be unfair and you wouldn't get the full vision. So this is going to be a very sort of self-revelatory inner monologue kind of deal. I'm warning you up front. But in fairness, you did ask for it. So I'll just leave you in suspense for that until the time being. How was this week for you, Walker? Been a great week. It's nice, beautiful weather this week. Went out to cottages, have a new puppy and let it go out and see all sorts of new and wonderful people. And it's 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 a great experience. What games does it like? It doesn't like any games. It likes the fetch game. And that's enough small talk. So, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And this is a game review week, so we will be talking about our feature game, which is Saul Last Days of a Star, which showed up on the hotness last week, and people have been asking about uh, more detailed reflections. And we are but slaves to your whims, and so that is exactly what we will be doing. So, what games did you play last week, Walker? Well, Mark, guess what? We finally got Men at Work in. Met Work is a fantastic dexterity game. I said fantastic. It's fantastic. Is it, it fantastic? It's, it's, it's visually stunning. It's not the greatest, you know, dexterity game we've ever played, right? Well, at least in my opinion. But the way it looks on the table and the game mechanisms are fine. The interaction is fine. It does have player elimination, which I'm sure you're going to, you were going to bring up. But other than that, the way it utilizes the pieces and the cards and the end conditions I think is all great for a dexterity game and like I said it looks fantastic you have little men with little hard hats crashing to the ground it leads to those awesome stories about poor Bob now has fractured legs and can't provide for his family and it's a terrible story okay workplace safety is a real issue I I understand yes men at work colon OSHA's nightmare colon liability field day 
the board game is one of those incredibly visually stunning dexterity games within just a few turns. Sometimes you have a dexterity game that's visually impressive after many turns, like Rhino Hero Super Battle. It takes a while to get going, but once you've got the full building, it's very, very visually impressive. Same thing with Junk Art. It only gets visually impressive after a few turns. But right away, even immediately after setup, people pass by and they want to know what you're playing and how it works. And I, it, it is so visually appealing, but it reminds me a lot in the very same way of another visually appealing dexterity game, namely Tokyo Highway. Specifically in the sense that it's great to play, everything's very lovely and tactile and visually appealing, but the actual game elements, the way it's been gamified in terms of victory conditions is somewhat unsatisfying. Specifically in the context of Men at Work, there's very few opportunities to score points, Mostly you're just trying not to lose points by not causing a collapse, which is fine. But the way that you score points is more or less a random function of what task you're being assigned to do. And there is a, a lovely variety of tasks, and they've done a very, very good job of using the components. But when I was playing it, I had this sort of arc of revelation over the course of the 20, 30 minutes we were playing. The first was, oh, this is beautiful, and oh, the, these are great components, and it's marvelous to play. And then about halfway through, it's like, wait... This doesn't really work as a game, necessarily, because I was just seeing how people were getting points, and when I was getting points, it was just because the deck said I could. And the end game conditions are a little bit wonky. And so really, at the end of the day, I'm left with the same impression that I had from Tokyo Highway, which is, this is great, I wish they'd, ha they'd made a better game out of this stuff. And in contrast with the other pretzel games, dexterity game that we love, namely Junk Art. Or Flick em Up. Well, any... Any pretzel games, dexterity game, really, but the more close analog is Junk Art in that it is, it is a stacking game. Junk Art, you have a, uh, a comparable variety of things to do with the components that you have, and I find the victory conditions, although not brilliant, vastly better. So I absolutely recommend Men at Work for a couple of times, and it really is visually stunning. And if you don't care when playing a dexterity game about how well it gamifies the components, then by all means, go to. But for my money, I'd, I'd, I'd rather play Junk Art. I'm glad I played Men at Work. I'll definitely play it if it's put in front of me again. But if there were a library involving both Men at Work and Junk Art, I would never prefer Men at Work over Junk Art. Agreed. 100% agreed. That's where you're sitting to? Well, that's where I, you know, that's what I said at the beginning. It's, it's a fantastic game, but it's by far not the best. But it looks amazing. Got this crane that you can put in the middle, put stuff on it, giant girders, and then the stories. Like in Junk Art... You don't have really have, you know... That is a good point. Part of the game is is the stories you tell, and and there's not... Unlike... Uh, but it, you, we do get them in SEAL Team Flicks, but not so much in Junk Art. But anyway, that's the one part that is, is really fun in the game. That is an excellent point. You also get to... It, it also allows you for more moments of hubris and more attempts at things that you should never really attempt, which is, you know, the, narratively speaking, is much more satisfying. You're absolutely right. So, in terms of the story of Mark's Interstate, I played Madara Unintentional Malum Act 1, which is one of the most pretentious subtitles I've ever heard. Madara is a pure co-op, campaign-based, dungeon-crawly game, and I've fallen asleep already. Now, I, I, I was loath to try it. So why, why, why'd you fall asleep? This is like a game state that I've never even heard of before. It's totally novel. It's never been done before. I knew going into it, that I wasn't going to be able to give Madara a fair shake. I know this perfectly well. And so in terms of pure transparency, you're going to have to take everything I say here with a massive grain of salt because I am sick to death of these kinds of things. I read the rules, and I, I will say that the rulebook was relatively well done. And 
redundant in a good way. Very rarely do I find rule books that are redundant in a good way. Usually it repeats the unimportant thing seven times that I had no difficulty remembering, but buries the all-important crucial proviso in some section that it, where it doesn't belong. Madara's rule book is excellently redundant. And I had all these components. It's a massive box full of stuff. I paid something like 70 bucks for it a few years ago, and now it's retailing for many more than that. It's on Kickstarter now. You can get everything that was released with, of course, the necessary balance upgrade because apparently they messed up some things. And I, I was just dreading having to wrestle with all this stuff, especially because, and this is also not the game's fault, I was playing it solo. And every game of Mandari, you have to play four characters exactly. So that is one fault against the game that is not my fault, in addition to, to, to one knock against it that is my fault. I per vastly prefer when a game allows you to scale the number of heroes or the number of players, especially because for those instances when you have three. When you have three players and you have to have four heroes, it's just, it's just awkward and it's unpleasant. Anyway... The fundamental combat system is dice-based, and it's building a dice pool, and it's comparing it against a defense number and an armor number, and you do damage, etc., etc. You can dodge in response, and there's some relatively decent action management. Every character gets three action points at the top of the turn, but they can save up to two, so next turn they can do something bigger, or they can hold things in reserve for counterattacks or dodging. That part's cute. That part I like. I am just not remotely interested... In, at this point, in a dungeon crawl game that unfolds its mysteries to me over dozens of plays. So if the initial system doesn't grab me, or if the narrative doesn't immediately impress me, and I don't have anything dragging me forward to the next games, the mere promise that I'm going to be able to further customize and kit out my character with new skills and new treasure and stuff is not going to do it for me. And despite the fact that Madara is a large box chocked full of things... I think I'm contractually and legally obliged to compare it to Gloomhaven because it is the market leader in that sphere. Gloomhaven's fundamental card management system is vastly more engaging to me than a standard sort of, well, I can move once and do one attack, which is what many of your activations boil down to in Madara anyway. And the customization options in Madara are the standard, well, I'm gathering experience points and then buying skills with them, as opposed to carefully curating a deck of cards and upgrading things in the way that Gloomhaven does. So in that sense, it's more or less a wash. The one thing that I really don't like, and this is this is more personal stuff, is Madara leans heavily into an anime aesthetic that at times is just weird looking. You know the old advice where before you go out for the evening, turn really quickly in front of the mirror and take off the first accessory that you can see. I think that all the characters in Madara needed to do that about 12 times. They've got bangles and harnesses and 17 different piercings and five different things in their hair, and these are just the men. And the women are not very well represented as a whole. Some of them are passable in a sort of anime way, you know, the the skirts that are really more like belts and things like that. But then there's a whole bunch of skin-tight, nipple-revealing stuff, and it's just a little tiresome, and I'm over that kind of aesthetic, honestly. I'm not going to go so far as to say that it's uh, that it's it's absolutely problematic overall, but there were a couple things where it was just, you know, you can tell that the publisher is called Succubus Publishing, and their their motto is stay sexy. It's just a little, it honestly, it's a little juvenile. I'm not offended as a feminist. I'm just tired as a consumer. That's where I am as far as the aesthetic is concerned. And so Madara was fine. It was okay. The scenario was all right. You uh, reveal secret things with a little film decoder, like back in the sticker books from the 80s. I don't know if anyone remembers those. And there were little reveals and so forth. But honestly, the plot didn't really grab me. And the opening missions are deliberately easy. It's a training mission. You're supposed to be passing some sort of exam in the in, in the fictional world. And honestly, 
you've got one shot to impress me with games like this, honestly. Hellboy did it, Gloomhaven did it, a whole bunch of other games in this in the sphere are able to do it. If you've got a campaign, don't bury your treasure under a bushel. Show it to me right away. Give me compelling scenarios from the get-go, or I'm not going to bring it back to the table. So, do I recommend Madara? If you've finished with Gloomhaven, and you're looking for something else like that, and you've either finished with or not interested in something like Kingdom Death Monster, if you're really looking for the next campaign game that will give you game after game after game and you slowly customize these things, maybe Madara is for you, but keep in mind that the game starts with four characters and that's it. You don't get character choice at the top. Your starting party is set for you. So you're not going to get those lovely character choices like you do in in Gloomhaven right right from the beginning. And you're not going to get the kind of evolving settlement that you get in Kingdom Death Monster. If you're okay with that, if you find the visual, uh, the, the character design appealing, and you're like, yeah, yeah, that's the person I want to I wanna play for a whole bunch of games, then sure, Madara might be for you. And I'm not disappointed with the time that I spent with Madara, but it is more or less what I expected. Namely, f- more fatigue-inducing than anything else by virtue of all these extra trappings. I have no end of patience for compelling combat games. Just a few weeks ago, we talked about Hellboy and how surprised I was and how engaged I was with Hellboy because of the core mechanistic elements. But Madara just doesn't doesn't cut it for me right now. If I'd never played Gloomhaven, if I'd never played Kingdom Death Monster, absolutely Madara would, would probably grab me in a different kind of way. And maybe in a couple of years, I'll be interested in starting another massive campaign like that. I mean, I haven't even we haven't even finished our Kingdom Death Monster campaign, so... That's where I am. I just want to be perfectly transparent and, and try to be able to give people a good perspective on, on where it is in Madara, but not for me, not going to go back. And that was Madara. I'd like to see it. At least it's the components. It sounds interesting. Not to play, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I just want to go back. Men at Work was designed by Rita Moodle by Pretzel Games, because I didn't, I didn't say who the designer was. Next, I'm going to talk about design, uh, Dinosaur Island. It was designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Brian Lewis from Panasaurus Games. Finally got it back to the table. It's one of the games I kept because it's just a great theme. Jurassic Park style. You're building this little dinosaur park with restaurants and rides and and giant attractions. No, the entire park is a restaurant. You see the visitors come in. It's a restaurant for dinosaurs. We don't say that. That's the (laughs) secret, right? And then, you know, the big reveal, your dinosaur food. In a way, if, you, if your security's not high enough, the dinosaurs will escape and eat your poor little patrons. It's a great little engine building, you know, and it's for the very first time we played the short game. It was very interesting. Got it done in like, you know, 45 minutes. It was super fun because you're way more focused on the goals as opposed to, you know, like getting your park bigger or whatever you're looking straight at the goals and what you need to do instead of you know trying to build this giant engine you're just trying to get the goals before the game is over so it's very interesting i like it for another reason because once you pull it out you uh it's easy to relearn because the way the boards are set out it goes through all the phases almost all of the information is there you just have to quickly look through the book and the little you know some of the little details like how many men you start with and st- stuff like that we got got it out Onto the table and done in less than an hour. And that's Dinosaur Island. I get to play a game called Planet. This is by Blue Orange Games of last year. Blue Orange is the same publisher that did Blue Lagoon, the Renner Tits Italian game that 
I was completely unprepared for how good it was. Blue Orange has always pro- makes a nice looking production, very colorful, very functional, very sturdy components. And Planet initially grabbed my attention because of its components. Everyone is basically the theme is the theming is shall we say rather thin, but everyone is more or less a god making a planet. And you start with this giant twelve sided planet that's roughly the size of a Rubik's cube, a little bit larger. And you draft tiles, which are ter- pieces of terrain, and then they adhere to the planet core with magnets. Any game can be made better with magnets. Well, except maybe Men at Work. Men at Work with magnets probably wouldn't work too well. Uh, that would kind of defeat the object and make things too easy. But I absolutely wanted to play Planet because you got to play around with magnets. And playing around with magnets was by far the best part of the game. And <laughs> it's a very simple drafting game. You're trying to create terrains. The tile placement matters because you care what things are adjacent to. Because you're trying to attract animals to your planet. It's this bizarre notion whereby their animals are these cosmic migrants. And they're like, okay, uh, I'm a scorpion. I want lots of deserts. Who's got lots of deserts for me? Oh, uh, God Louis? Okay, I'll go join your planet and so forth. It, it makes no sense, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? It totally makes sense. Oh, okay. The Well, then maybe they should have had little little packed bags. All, 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 yeah, all little luggage. Maybe, maybe unique spaceships for each. Oh, that'd be good. That'd be cool. I'd get behind that. Okay, I think we're designing a good expansion Ooh, for planet. I like this. As I say, it's a very straightforward drafting game, but the tile placement matters because of... Uh, terrain placement, and as the game progresses, you have less and less room on your planet. So, in addition to just being a cool component, it's more than just a gimmick because the it being on a twelve sided figure, obviously that all the all the pieces are pentagons, and that makes the adjacency work in a way that you wouldn't be able to do with square tiles or even pentagonal tiles on a on a two D plane. And still, you get to play with magnets. So that was the primary joy of Planet. The actual game, I didn't wasn't very compelling. It you just you're just drafting tiles over and over and over again. There's a there's a, a a small bit of interest in that. All the 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 animals are lined up in a queue, and you can try to decide whether you want to compete for the animal coming up next, or plan and set up for the animals that are coming up far later. So maybe there'd be more depth if you played it a whole bunch more times. But honestly, I didn't find the actual drafting decisions to be very compelling, especially since very often in the flop of five tiles to to draw, they were functionally very, very similar. It's also the case that you can end up putting yourself into a corner from which you can't emerge by virtue of running out of space pretty quickly. And maybe if you were some kind of super genius, you'd be able to see that coming. But for me, it mostly felt a little arbitrary. Finally, it's also the case that the gimmick kind of works against you because while you're trying to tally up the number of trains you have of a given type, you can't see your entire planet at once. So you have to turn around and try to count, and sometimes it gets difficult because we're talking about something like 10 terrains that are contiguous or something like that, and so counting it is a little bit tedious. So, cute visual gimmick, visually appealing, cosmic scorpions, but planet I didn't find solidly compelling. And that was planet. Just a couple quick notes of games that I've talked about a lot in the past that I got to play again. I got to play another game of Rangers of Shadowdeep. This is the co-op or solo tabletop miniatures game where there's just enough of a campaign element, but not so much that it feels like busy busy paperwork. I commented previously that the last scenario was pretty disappointing, and I was looking forward to the next scenario because it had a sort of a stealth element. And I have to say that I didn't really get to experiment with it much because my gaming partner completely messed it up and just blundered out in the open and said, hey guys, look at me! Maybe he just rolled poorly, but I, I choose to believe that it is some moral failing on his part. Probably. And you know who you are. So 
it turned into a slog, but despite that, I was actually relatively pleased with the tactical horizons that it offered. It wasn't just purely a dice fest. There was some issue of terrain blocking. There was an issue of trying to make sure that the activations chained up in a certain way so that we had numerical advantage. It's the case that the scenarios give you visual variety if you've got enough terrain. So again, I can't stress this enough. If you're experienced with miniatures games, if you've got a lot of minis hanging around and you have a lot of different terrain so you can simulate different kinds of battlefields, Rangers of Shadow Deep is absolutely worth your attention because it's a cheap and cheerful system that that really gets a lot of mileage out of a good miniatures collection. So if you don't have those things then it might be a little daunting because, you know, at the top of a mission it says, well, for this mission what you probably need are 12 gnolls of these three different varieties, four giant spiders, a couple of zombies, uh, a couple of villagers, and uh, a tent, a fireplace, a river, and about 12 trees. So again, if you've been miniatures gaming for a long time, you might have those things lying around or be willing to proxy. If you don't, and boom. If you don't, effectively impossible or millions of dollars. So not not your first miniatures game, but definitely some interesting stuff there. All you need is probably HeroScape and Descent in your set. In terms of miniatures, absolutely. I've been proxying a lot of HeroScape minis, but. If you have a HeroScape collection, you've probably been doing miniatures gaming for lots of years because it's been out of print for so long. There you so. Go. The other game I played again was Pax Renaissance. I finally found a couple of individuals who were eager to learn Pax Renaissance rather than merely willing to learn Pax Renaissance. And for the first time since the release of Gloomhaven, I uh, am changing my top 20. Pax Renaissance is now in my top 20. I love me some Pax Renaissance. Great stuff always happens. This was no exception, and everyone had a great time. And this was three players who... All immediately, well, the two new players immediately internalized the victory conditions and the kind of parameters that they could that they could yank on to try to get towards those victory conditions, and so it was a very tense, tight affair uh, where a lot of people were in contention for a lot of different things. Absolutely wonderful. Finally, new game called Sukiyumi Full Moon Down. It's been quite some time. That's that's an impressive title. Whew. Tsukuyumi is uh, a weird dudes on a map game, and it's been quite some time since we've actually talked about a weird dudes on a map game, so I was I was keen to try it. This was kickstarted a few months ago by Gray Fox Games for a second edition with miniatures. The first edition, which was had a more limited release from King Raccoon Games, Raccoon with one C, not two. I don't know what that means, but it certainly means something. Hipster Raccoon. Oh, a hipster Raccoon, okay. This version has standees, and I'll get to that in a moment, but it is a heavily asymmetric game about a post-apocalyptic conflict on the floor of the Pacific Ocean after the moon lands on it and uh, a demon dragon kind of crawls out and Oni starts spewing forth from the cracked moon. So, you know, so we've... Typical Friday night. Typical Friday night. And I have to say that there was a lot about Tsukimi that I really, really liked. The activation system is brilliant. You draft an action card, and that tells you what you're going to do in each phase. Some phases you might skip. Some phases you might do some things and not others. And some might have a special power that applies to that. And the drafting had the element of, I can't let this person downstream for me have this card, so I have to take it, which is always what we look for in a drafting system. That was drafting off of a deck or drafting the same action cards every round? At the start of the game, everyone has dealt six. And there's going to be four rounds in a standard length game, and that's it. So you just draft a card, you do the round, then at gotcha. the end of the round you draft a card, so that, that's all you do. So it, it, it's not it's not primarily a drafting game, it's just that's the way the action cards enter the system. But there was a little bit of, of, of hate drafting and being able to, to maximize your own turns. The combat system is really cool. Whoever initiates the combat plays a combat card, and then they hand that combat card to their opponents... 
that are present there, and every opponent chooses a reaction from a list of recipes on that combat card. And what that lets you do is some factions have really, really amazing combat cards that say things like, I get to conquer this territory even though I'm really not allowed to. I don't have the necessary forces, but I'm going to conquer it anyway. But then a lot of the responses are devastating to them, as opposed to the more standard ones, which is, well, I conquer this territory because I'm entitled to, where the responses are less bad. That part was great. The problem was that the game felt kind of plodding. In terms of the actual victory conditions as well, it was rather rather bone simple. It was another just hold on to dirt and grab on to dirt kind of game. That's where the bulk of the victory points came into, and I'm not a huge fan of that. That exacerbates things like turn order, that makes early uh, results sometimes too determinative. It means that sometimes if you get bogged down in the movement, you haven't planned things carefully enough, you can't get to where you want to go. Now, there's a sort of a neutral faction, namely the Oni, that everyone can activate that kind of sort of offsets that, so I'm, I'm okay with that. But ultimately... Our first game with three players took two full hours. With uh, with more players, it just adds on more time. So with four or five, we're looking at possibly a, a three to four hour experience, maybe. And uh, that's more than it really wants to be. It's got some interesting stuff. The asymmetry is nice. Not as heavy as something like Root, but definitely more than your typical dudes on a map game. And the upcoming edition... I'm very nervous about. I actually pledged for it on a mostly on a whim. But every unit in Tsukiyumi has three different numbers. They have a conquest value for indicating how good they are taking over terrain. They have an attack value to do damage. And they have a hit point value, how much it takes to kill them. And we were constantly checking these numbers on the different chits that were strewn all over the map. With miniatures, I am hard-pressed to imagine how this is going to be very workable. Because you're going to have to get a mini to correspond to a stat card, and then you need to look at a terrain and say, okay, there are two big whales and one kind of tiny whale, and then there's a, a weird-looking samurai and a different weird-looking samurai. Which one is which? How much conquest value do you have there again? And you check reference cards all over the place. Honestly, even with everything printed on, on the tokens, sometimes there was just a huge scrum on a terrain and it was hard to figure out what was going on. But with minis, I have no earthly conception of how that's going to work. I'm eager to see the final result, but I, I, I suspect it's going to be borderline unmanageable for some of your heavier areas. It's also weird that in going forward, Tsukiyumi is going to have these two parallel editions. There's the minis version and then there's the standee version. But my understanding is that King Raccoon Games has expressed that they continue to want to support the original version. There's a new faction coming out for the previous printing in a couple of months that they're going to be releasing in December. So Gray Fox is going to have its minis version and King Raccoon is going to have its standee version. They're both going to go on in parallel, kind of, sort of, which is interesting, but potentially weird. So it's, it's an interesting system. It does some good things. But overall, I find it, you know, rather slow and ponderous for, for what it's doing. It's one of those games where it, there's no reason why it has to take as long as it does, because every individual action is very, very quick. But at the end of the day, when you're doing lots and lots and lots of small little things, the time adds up. You look down at your watch and say, oh, all I've done is take a couple of territories and it's been a half hour. This is kind of... So that was my overall reaction to Tsukiyumi. I might try it again if people want to. Uh, especially if I have faith that they'll be able to play quickly. But overall, it is interesting. I'm just not sure it bears its its length and its weight. And so that was Tsukiyumi Full Moon Down. Now on to the news and why it does not matter. Mark, another Conan game. Really? We need another Conan game. Yeah, it's going to be like an arena-type Conan game. This would be Howard, not O'Brien, right? That's correct. So, yeah, it's going to come out of Kickstarter tomorrow, in fact. It's weird. There's a bunch of new Kickstarters just starting tomorrow. Very weird. Don't know what's so special about the 16th, but there you go. 
Is this a two-player or a multiplayer game? It is a multiplayer arena-style Conan Savage Legends game. Great. Another multiplayer combat game that can disappoint us. I know. Can't wait. I talked last week about how there was going to be a new edition of Quest for Eldorado, and I mentioned that I was pessimistic that the new expansions were going to be compatible with the original, but... I'm happy to say that I was completely wrong. Ravensburger, the publisher of the uh, current edition of Quest for Eldorado, said that all the future expansions will be released for the current printing as well as the newer printing. So it's going to be another Tsukumi full moon down kind of situation. I'm always happy to be proven wrong, especially when I'm cynical about cross-compatibility of expansions. And so good news going forward for people who want more expansions for Quest for Eldorado. All right, Mark's already talked about Blue Orange. I'm going to talk about Blue Orange is bringing out a game called King Domino Duel, so just a two-player roll-and-write game. It is also designed by Bruno Cathala and Ludwig Montblanc. And, you know, because we need another roll-and-write game that is based on King Domino. I think you brought that up just so you could speak French. Yeah. Our listeners are correct. You just bend over backwards to find any excuse to use French. It's true. It's so pretentious, and I hate it. Well, you know, there you go. I, I try to talk less, but that's just the way it rolls, Mark. I'm so sorry. From the pictures, it looks semi-interesting. You're going to be rolling two dice, forming your domino, writing the, you know, drawing the little train on your thing. Maybe it'll be interesting. You know, uh, King Domino blew up when it first came out, so maybe this one will do just as well. King Domino Duel. As I've commented before, I am a sucker for Norse mythology, and so when a Norse mythology game doesn't really hit with me, I'm always disappointed and convinced that it's my problem, not it. That was probably the case with the co-op game Yggdrasil. I enjoyed it well enough, but it didn't really grab me. But there's going to be a new edition, so I'll have a chance to get disappointed all over again. So the original version is heavily out of print. They had a, a very brief print run last year in, in very limited quantities. Uh, but the expansion was not included, and the expansion is you know fetching ridiculous quantities of money on the secondary market. The new version is going to be called Yggdrasil Chronicles, and of course it's got a campaign system because everything has to have a, link, a series of linked scenarios. And, and a solo solo variant. Well, I mean, it was already a solo co-op game anyway, so that part, that part was already in the system. If you tell me, though, that I get to play as Tyr and I get to play a game that starts with Baldur's Murder and details the events of the Ragnarok... You know, I'm there. So I'm definitely going to give it another shot and see what happens. And the artwork looks stunning. The art was, was good in the original version. I quite liked it. But the, the new artwork is a very interesting direction. So I'm looking forward to trying Idrisil Chronicles. It's very seldom. And we're always excited that after a game's been out for 13 years, that it gets its first expansion. Kind of crazy. So anyway, Through the Ages is getting an expansion. I thought it was it sort of blew my mind. You know, like I said, this game's come out 13 years ago. Never had an expansion. All sorts of different promo stuff you can get from Europe, but no official expansion. And now one's been announced. It's called Through the Ages, New Leaders and Wonders. You know, so then you know exactly what you're getting. But apparently there's <laughs> going to be so new leaders, new wonders. Apparently there's going to be more combat cards as well. So a game that does very well, is finally getting its first expansion. Kind of exciting. It did have a second edition, though. It did. But yes, it is unusual that it took this long for it to have an expansion, given how obviously expandable the game is. It's true. 
Final note from me, this is a, a bit of a downer, but it's important. Uh, Aaron Lee Escobedo, the designer of the brilliant game Meltwater that we've talked about several times over the course of the podcast. Go and try it. It's fabulous. Go play her sad game. On the topic of sadness, though, and more seriously, uh, her mother is going through chemotherapy and is running a GoFundMe so as to get some support uh, through this difficult time. We're going to be having a link in the episode descri- description. So for all you wargamers out there that want to support wargame designers who are a very, very important element of our community, please go check it out and consider donating if you can. We here at Swag have already uh, put some money into the till, as it were, and we hope everyone else might consider doing the same. And on that note, that is the news. And why it does matter. Some some news matters. Others Other news does not. So our feature game this week is Saul, Last Days of a Star. This was put out a couple of years ago after a successful Kickstarter by Ryan Spangler and Sean Spangler of Elevant Laboratories. This is normally the part where I would talk about a design pedigree or games that are obviously in the same kind of genre or mold. I have finished that part of it. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Soul Last Days of a Star? Well, in Soul Last Days of the Star, you are playing a famous singer of soul music, and you're in this downward spiral of drug abuse and alcoholism just before your very last days of burning out, and you try to succeed in your last concert. It's a very great soul-crushing game. Walker, why don't you give us a slightly less unhelpful summary of what one does in Soul, right. Last Days of a Star? All right. We talked about this in the last episode. Soul, Last Days of a Star grabs you with its theme immediately. The the There's a star going supernova. There's all these different cultures that, that are living around this star. And it's going supernova because they've been harvesting energy from the sun. And now they know they have to, the scientists have said, you know, this is going to explode. We need to get out of here. So they've all built these giant arcs and now they have to store all this energy so they can build up enough momentum so they can get away from uh, this exploding star. So it's all about funneling the last energy from this, you know, you know, limitless power of the exploding star and building up enough momentum, sacrificing everything that you have left in this area so you can get the few people away and have your civilization survive. One of the things that I really like about the theme, above and beyond how unique it is, we don't play games like this much. Most of the time in science fiction games, it's basically the Pacific War all over again. You know, I think about even, again, even games I like, like Eclipse. Eclipse is basically the Pacific Theater of Operations over again. Uh, Twilight Imperium, you know, we're all familiar with that mold. It's like, oh, this race is just a little bit different or wacky. Their ships are a little bit different, but let's build up a whole bunch of ships and fight. Whereas Soul is a, a, a different vision of the future. It's transhumanistic. Not many games are fully transhumanistic in this way. One of the factions has more or less abandoned their physical form and only retreats to it reluctantly. Another faction is more or less entirely aquatic over the course of their long evolution. Anyway, the fiction is relatively well done, at least in terms of fleshing out the world. But it is simultaneously transhumanistic and thoroughly grim. This is not a post-apocalyptic game. This is a pre-apocalyptic game where you see your civilization ending and you're desperately hoping that someone can survive. And that juxtaposition is a very interesting thematic niche that obviously no other tabletop game that I can think of has, has successfully executed. And I re- it really makes uh, Soul stand out. And I can understand why so many people are trying to track it down now that it's out of print, if, if for no other reason than the way that it, it sits in a very unique space. 
So Soul is a game of where you try to maximize your actions, where you see your final goal and you slowly build up to that. You say, okay, I need to do this. Well, in order to do that, you know, correctly, I need to do this first. And in order to do that to its maximum effect, I have to do this first. So you're sort of chaining your actions together, which is a game, that is, which is a mechanism that I love. The fact that you can use anyone's buildings, you're like building closer and closer to the center of the star because the actions you take closer to the center are better. So you're, you know, building these gates that let your ships go in closer to the center and you're building your buildings. Other people can use your buildings, which gives you a bonus if you have the power to use those buildings. The flow is real, you know, because you go around the table very quickly. You're simply doing one action. Either you're moving stuff around, you're activating buildings, or you're building buildings. Those are your three options pretty well. And other than that, it's, you know, uh, making sure you have enough power to uh, do the actions you need to do. Yeah, so it's got the flow. Actually, the flow reminds me a little bit, and this, of course, is high praise for me, of some of Matt Gertz Rondel games, where your turns are little micro turns, little tiny things that on occasion you have huge activations that are massively consequential, mind you. But every given thing that you do is very, very simple. On a turn, you can do one very narrowly focused thing. And this dovetails with using other people's infrastructure. So a lot of games like this like Saul, where it's at the end of the day, it's a race for victory points in the, in the, in the, the, the timer of the game. But here it's not just about building your own buildings. It's knowing that sometimes you want to use other people's buildings. And I just want to highlight one focus that often trips up new players that I actually think is really neat. The way buildings work in, in Saul, you're absolutely right. The closer they are to the core of the sun, the more effective they are. But effectiveness isn't really the right way to conceive of it because when you activate a building, you have to do everything or you can do nothing. Now, if it's just a building that gives you energy, that's not a problem. You just get energy, and, and some of them are more efficient at getting energy. But the ones that cost energy, the ones that let you build other ships, or the ones that let you buy victory points, those are fundamentally the three different buildings in the game. If you can't afford everything that the building can do, you get to do nothing. And as a consequence of this, if somebody else activates your building, say you've built this massive tower close to the core of the sun, possibly, you know, arguably one of the most valuable buildings of the game because of its tremendous capability of churning out victory points all at once. If you can't afford to activate its secondary effect, which is the bonus you get of, of for having built the thing, you get to do none of it. And then the person who activated the building, if they can, they will. And that can be a massive point swing. So whenever you build a building, whenever you commit yourself to infrastructure, whenever you activate a building, you're always looking at everybody else to say, will someone else be able to make better use of this building than me? When I activate this building, will I be just handing more support to whoever built it in the first place? Or better yet, am I going to be able to snake out their bonus out from under them and do a massive turn and leave them frustrated? And that part is, I think, really when Saul shines in terms of the, the strict player interaction, the competition, the calculations that help step it aside from just being a pure infrastructure race. Yeah, there's so many parts of Soul that aren't forced player interaction. Like we talk all the time where, you know, there's games that just introduce cards or, or mechanisms that force it. This is just pure and natural feeling. Like like all the points that you just said about the scene if people need energy, but it's also looking at what buildings are out there. It's like, oh, I don't need to build that. He's got that one there. I'm just going to use that. 
I can build something else over here, or I don't need to build these gates because I can go through these gates here, or I can, you know what I mean? And it's not a force thing. It's just, it's sort of like just natural and feels right. And it is a definitely interaction where you're not always heads down looking at what you're doing. You're, you're watching the whole table. You're seeing what power people have, what buildings they've put out, what they're trying to do. So you can sort of get in their way or do certain things. Love it. Also the, and again, we've talked about this before. The brilliant element, sometimes in a game, we talk about the importance of choices, but sometimes taking away an element of choice can really get you more strategic dividends later on. Your mothership, from which you spawn all of your other ships that drive everything, everything is driven by these Sundiver ships. That's how you build buildings, that's how you activate buildings, that's how you move around. Your mothership slowly orbits around the exterior of the sun, and there's nothing you can do to alter its orbit at all. It moves ahead one step at the end of each of your turns inexorably with no variation. And what that means is the building that you drop down in turn one is on the other side of the sun by turn seven. And it's not in your interest to necessarily haul yourself all the way to the other side of the galaxy. Because, again, I've seen tons and tons of Euro games that emphasize, oh, well, you know, just... Make a deal with somebody else and use their other thing. And there's this, you know, they make, well, they work out mechanism for resource sharing. And most of the time in a poorly designed game, it's not in your interest to do it. And you're just going to build your own and activate your own things. You cannot go solely alone in Saul Last Days of a Star simply because it's not efficient. And the, so the game, again, organically leads you to substantive player interaction. And it's marvelous. And not only that, it, signifies your turn is done so it adds to the flow it's like i do boom 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 i slide my ship the next person knows it's their turn if you look down at the board you can quickly see whose turn it is because there's more space between certain ships that whole and it works into the theme fantastic that having been said i have yet to play a game where there wasn't at least one moment of substantive confusion because people had not consistently been doing that it's true minor minor quibble (laughs) game does not take very long i love how long it takes it's all driven by this deck and it's uh you put in a suit how many do we know how many cards are in the in a suit 13 of every even the even the 13 cards to every deck and so you're going to have a a color of deck per player and you're going to shuffle them in and you're going to shuffle all the solar flares in and then once the final solar flare comes up that's the end of the game now how do these cards come up and what's the purpose of the other cards other than the solar flares well, there's these special abilities, and they're going to be different every game. And every time you do either activate a building or build a building in the in the core of the sun, you're going to draw a certain number of cards. And you're always going to be able to have one up in front of you and one only. And it's either going to be one of the, the, the solar flare cards or one of the colors that corresponds to special powers. And there's all sorts of different ones. I'm not going to go into very many of them. And every time a, a soul... Sorry, every time a solar flare card comes up, you're going to move the turn marker just so people know how how many cards are left so you know the end of the game is coming. And then all the buildings in the very outer ring get to activate for free. And this leads to all sorts of very interesting and different uh, strategies that you can have. Like you can put an uh, you know a, a energy collector so you're going to get this constant flow of energy. You could put the, the victory point building out there so you're going to at least get 13 victory points no matter what throughout the course of the game if you put that out first because that's another built-in strategy as well at the beginning of the game you get to put out a building and that and it, and it really does matter which building you put out first it's just not an arbitrary decision so where i was going with this the cards cards are great when you activate buildings build buildings you draw a certain number of cards you get one face up and you can and you use it they're all marked with uh what phase they can be used in all very useful so 
kind of expanding on this this overall point, call me M. Night Shyamalan because this is where the twist in the review is coming. I think that you're absolutely right that Saul is a short game with very engaging flow. But if anything, I think that Saul is actually too long for what it is. And here's why. The variability in the game is relatively minimal. It is mostly a function of which cards come up when and which abilities you'll be you'll be make, being able to make use of when and the rate at which the solar flares come out. But after the first couple of games, I tended to notice something. Right around the midway point, you can look at the score and you know who's going to win because this is fundamentally in terms of churning out the points Although there's all this great player interaction with the way that infrastructure works, there are very few ways to get points. And that's to its strength, but it ends up feeling like a solvable puzzle. And if somebody at the table has played the game even two or three times more than everybody else, chances are excellent that they've figured out the puzzle much better than everyone else has. And sometimes they're just going to run up the score in a way that makes other people feel borderline demoralized. Now, this is also a, a criticism of lots of other brilliant Euro games with hardly any luck elements. Antica 2 has the same problem. And so the extent to which it bothers you is going to be very much a matter of taste. I've actually seen some people get r kind of frustrated with this fact because in Saul, everything you do to get points will probably help run out the clock. And so if you're behind, and you know you're behind, and you ask yourself, what can I possibly do to turn this around? It's not transparent to me that there is much of anything that people can do. You know, they can either try to go activate buildings more, but that runs out the clock, and if this person is doing really well, probably some of that infrastructure is theirs, and they'll probably be benefiting from what's going on as well. And so you end up having to say, okay, what I need to do is score points without running out the clock and without using any of the infrastructure of the person who's winning. Sometimes that game state allows for that, and you can try to suboptimally then try to haul yourself up into contention. But mostly... My criticism of Saul, and this is this is the biggest problem that I have, is that although it's a short, engaging experience, sometimes at around the halfway point, people can look at the scoreboard and say, eh, we're pretty much done here. And that's kind of unfortunate. Mark, once again, you've gone into the bad points before I covered all the good points. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. How many that. times have I, have I talked to you about this? I was, I was following on your conceptual framework. Like, seriously. All right. Anyway. I have that exact same points in my in my bad points. I'll go over them now. It's rewards veterans. If you played it before, you're going to do much better. And like Mark also said, I really feel it's a puzzle game. Without those special abilities, it, it's just a straight puzzle game. You're going to figure out the best efficient way. So the game relies on those special abilities. If they're not, if they weren't there, then this game would not be any good. And but. I think they are a good part of the game. I'm not saying that's a particularly bad point because there's all sorts of different ones. They're going to be random every game. But you're right. Definitely, if someone's raced ahead and more likely because they've played before, then there's very little you can do to stop them. And I will say that I do love the variety that the cards introduce and they do make the game feel a little bit different. But some of the cards lend themselves to a certain obvious use. For example... Uh, there's the hyperdrive card, which if, allows you to increase the movement of a, of, of a ship if you only move one ship on your turn. One of the ways you can get points is by sending these ships called Sundivers hurtling into the core of the sun and obliterating them. And when you have the hyperdrive card out, that's what you do with them. Suddenly it's not a challenge 
to get a ship to the core of the sun, because again, they, they get launched from these motherships that are around the periphery. If you've got hyperdrive, you have the movement to do it, probably. If there are, if there are enough gates on the board, which by the mid-game there almost certainly will be, and it is in your interest to do so, because again, you can only move one ship, so you're not going to be using it to set up some sort of infrastructure turn later on. So yeah, it's a cool ability, and it helps modify the contours of the game, but once it's out, there's kind of an obvious way to use it. So again, it changes the contours of the puzzle, but it doesn't undermine the central problem that we've both identified, which is that it is basically a solvable puzzle. And unlike in other games like Antica or other no-luck games where you can at least say, well, this is my stuff, you know, I know I'm not in contention for the for, for the win, but I get to at least build my little empire and, and do my own little thing. You know, the strength of Saul is that there isn't your own little empire. It's just, there's just buildings that can be activated by anybody. But that further heightens the frustration of knowing that you can't catch up, but there's still a whole bunch of turns left in the game. So even though it's frustrating, one of my good points is the fact that there's no end game scoring. Right, you know, we've already said you sort of know who's winning already, but at least there's not this, you know, you know, big wrap up at the end and, you know, adding all the points. It's boom, it's done. Same at the beginning. I think it's a very fast setup. Once you've, you know, figure out which decks you're going to, or what special abilities you're going to use, you put your building, your ship, and you're, you know, you're ready to go. And it goes right into, you know, choose one of the three actions that you can do. And I feel as though all three of those actions are very useful. There's not like one that you're going to be focusing on every time. They're all very balanced, all very good actions. Which I think feeds into, and I can't believe we haven't gotten into these yet, everything about Saul Last Days of a Star is sort of clean and not austere, but minimalistic in a very appealing way. Both in terms of the setup, that the game ends when it ends, and there's no nothing is convoluted uh, uh, in terms of calculation, and perhaps most strikingly, in the visual design. I've commented before, I've never seen a game be simultaneously so functional and yet so visually clean and appealing. We actually uh, played a game where the sun was setting and the pieces were casting these long shadows on the game board. And it really, really emphasized how really pretty everything in Saul is. And the cards have a simple, a similarly stripped-down aesthetic the, the base playing cards you have have no text on them. They're just a reference to other things that have a small amount of text. And everything was, you really get the sense that everything from the player aids, from the board to the, to the player components, was designed with a great deal of care and a great deal of consciousness about how this is going to feel, feed into the overall play experience. And again, to communicate this very unique vision of a sort of grim transhumanistic experience. Yep. I, that's my very first point, is that it's a clean game. The only time that it gets, I don't know, confusing or fiddly, I don't think it was just me, is when either you're building, uh, building buildings or activating buildings or destroying, everything happens from your sun divers. You're turning your sun divers into buildings or you're, you're moving sun divers, you know, one place or the other. So it's always confusing. Are you bringing them back to your ship or are you destroying them and putting them back in your supply or are you obliterating them and they're out of the game for the rest of the game? Some, you know, after a while, it, it, you know, you, you understood how it worked, but it was one of those things that was a little bit confusing at first. And sometimes the wording on the cards sort of fed into this confusion because sometimes they, you know, misplaced some words and made it, you know, not really seem obvious what you were supposed to be doing. You're right. There are two things that trip up first-time players. One of them is, again, this notion of who gets to activate a building and who gets the bonus of a building and how those interplay. And the other is that, yes, there are three different things that a ship can do. It can be recalled, it can be sacrificed, or it can be vaporized. And internalizing what happens when and how the ships move around in that sense 
can be a bit intimidating and confusing for new players. All right, so my sum up point is that I really get a scythe feel. Not overall, but this game. It's it's just the lining up all of your actions and needing to maximize each one. It's like, okay, this is what I want. In order to get there, I have to do this. But I want to maximize that action. So in order to maximize this action, I have to do this first. You're like sort of like dovetailing all these actions together to finally get to your end action. And then you sort of, you know, start again and work it all together. So it gave me, gave me that scythe feel of having to, you know, backtrack saying, okay, I want to do this next, but that's not very effective. You know, if, if I had a couple more ships out or if I did this and this, this first, that would make that action way more powerful. So I'm going to back up one and do this first. Okay. Well, in order to do that, that, that's not very effective. <laughs> so, you know, you it's one of those things where you go back a couple steps and then work your way up to much bigger action. So, and, and overall, I think I'll play Saul every time it hits the table, and I really feel as though I will I will suggest to play it because it's one of those games that is very easily remembered. You know, there's no fiddly rules. It's like, okay, this is how it worked. You got a deck of cards per player. You know, quickly randomize or use one of the preset special ability things, put your ships on the board, and you're ready to go. I think the analogy with Scythe is pretty apt. I remember reading on Board Gaming Geek and other places, you know, the really expert scythe players talking about how this is your opening. So many turns to get to the factory. So many turns to get this. These are the actions you do, and this is the specific order. And obviously, when that breaks down in a game like scythe is through the player interaction. Someone can go and punch your face in. Someone can get in your way. Someone can steal your resources. Someone can do that. In Saul, you don't have that. In fact, you have quite the opposite. The player interaction is actually feeding into the efficiencies that you want to build into your system. And as a result, the more I play Saul, and especially when I'm playing Saul with new players, it feels like I'm preparing a canned opening. Not because I don't care what the other players can do, but precisely because it's an efficiency problem that I've had more experience with than all the, all the, uh, than they've had. And suddenly all those good bits about player interaction kind of fade away because I know, okay, here's what I need to do. Here's the steps that I need to do, do to get a more efficient economy going to, to feed into these points while everyone else is playing around with the system. And that's fine. But then when they look up after playing around with the system for a while and they realize that they're 20 points behind the leader, then suddenly sometimes the frustration sets in. And it's not particularly satisfying for the player with more experience either. So I'll happily play it when suggested, but I, I think in term my my days of suggesting Saul are done precisely because I think the puzzle-like elements are getting more and more to the forefront. And when it's a puzzle that you can solve faster than anybody else at the table, it's not as satisfying a game experience, which is a shame. I had a great time getting there. Don't get me wrong. The first few plays, when everyone was roughly at the same level of experience, figuring out the system, figuring out new novel uses of the cards, it was really compelling and I was able to live that universe. But now, sadly, the universe is kind of dying like a fading star. That's poetry, man. Oof. Precisely because the, pu- goosebumps. because the puzzle is coming to the forefront. And if you love canned openings... If you love reading about those strategy guys that says, okay, this is what you need to do and figure out how to get that one turn efficiency. If you love trying to maximize your solo score in Euro games where it's about this action followed by this action and then points, then yeah, Saul is definitely going to have legs for you. But for me, it has not had the legs that I hoped that it would. And that's where I'm at with Saul Last Days of a Star. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! 
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>